chapter 9. By the way, just a reminder, two weeks from tonight is our Thanksgiving Pie Fellowship, starting at 6.30, so uh, don't forget about that. Tuesday the 20th. All right. As we come to Luke chapter 9, some very familiar verses we're going to be looking at tonight. But the first thing we want to look at are the first nine verses where we see the mission of the disciples. And you'll notice that it says in verse 1, And Jesus called the twelve together, and He gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Notice that Jesus here is empowering His followers to serve. And He's giving them, in a sense, His power and authority. That's what God does with all of us. We have the privilege, when we are children of God, to, in a sense, go in the power and authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we are empowered by Him to serve. And we see that happening here. And I I just want to encourage you all uh, here at the Oasis that we want to encourage folks and empower you to serve here. Uh, Even though you may not have a lot of experience in serving, maybe you don't have a lot of training in serving. Uh, and I know there's different philosophies about that, and, and I've certainly uh, had people who you know disagree with me on sort of my philosophy, but I am trying to model the church after the way I see the Lord Jesus doing it with, with His disciples. And His philosophy was basically, I know that by empowering people to serve... There's going to be what I'm going to call short-term inefficiency. But the short-term inefficiency, if people are patient, is going to give way to long-term gain. Jesus never made decisions based upon short-term. It was always long-term. And you take the disciples and what He would thrust them in and throw them into... There were many times where they were learning as they went and they were making lots of mistakes and all of that, but in the long term, it paid off. And so, I don't want folks here at the Oasis to feel like they've got to go through a five-year training program or bring ten years of ministry experience before they can do something for the Lord. Now, certainly... That depends on what role and what position we're talking about in the church. But I want to empower people to serve because I feel like that's what Jesus Christ did. And that's exactly what we see here. In that mission of the disciples, notice they were to herald the kingdom of God. In verse 2, he sent them out to proclaim. The word literally means to be a herald of the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And to be a herald doesn't just mean they go out and talk about the kingdom of God. Because the kingdom of God, remember, is the reign, the rule, the power, and the authority of Jesus Christ. 
And therefore, it's not just what we say. It's literally that our lives are demonstrating the power of God. That's why healing and casting out demons and all of that was part of heralding the kingdom of God. Their lives were showing God's the one that's reigning. He's the one ruling. He's the one on the throne. He's the one that has all power and authority. Demons don't have more power and authority. Sickness doesn't have more power and authority. Death doesn't have more power and authority than Jesus Christ. Nothing has more power and authority than Him. And so to herald the kingdom of God is to live a life demonstrating the power of God operating in our lives. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 20, Paul said, The kingdom of God is not demonstrated in idle talk, but in power. If you and I are demonstrating the kingdom of God, then we will be demonstrating and evidencing and manifesting the power of God pulsating through our lives. And, and let me say this. It's more than just healing sick and raising the dead and all of that. We're demonstrating the power of God every time we say no to self and yes to God. We're demonstrating the power of God every time we say no to temptation and yes to God. We say, uh, demonstrate the power of God every time we say no to the world and yes to God. No to Satan and yes to God. Every time we deny self, which we're going to talk about later, we are demonstrating the power of God in our lives. And so... How is the power of God being demonstrated in our lives right now? And again, it's, it's the power of God. It's not what we can cook up within us or muster up within us. It is the power of the Holy Spirit living through us as we allow Him to fill us and take control of our lives. This was the mission of the disciples. Not just to talk about the kingdom, but have their lives evidence that power. Because it was going to be in their lives evidencing that power that was going to draw people to the one behind that power, which was Jesus Christ. Secondly, notice they were also to trust God's provision. For Jesus says to them in verse 3, Take nothing for your journey. No staff, no bag, no bread, no money. Do not take even an extra tunic. Learn to let me provide for you. Begin to trust me to provide for you. But notice, as we're going to see, God was going to provide for them through other people, which is most of the time the way God does it. God does the providing, but he does it through people. God may want you right now to be providing a need for someone else. And he is working through you, and He's doing it, but He's doing it through you. You're the instrument. You're the channel. Maybe someone right now is blessing your life and providing something for you, and they're just being an instrument and a channel. But we are to trust God's provision. God does not want us to live our lives and go out and minister and serve, always having a cloud of doubt about who's going to take care of me? Who's watching out for me? Who's going to care for me? He wants us to totally be focused on Him and what He wants us to do. And again, that's going to tie in later with the feeding of the thousands. Because, can I just say, the mission of the disciples 2,000 years ago is really the same mission that He has for us. He wants us to be a herald of God's power He wants us to trust His provision in our lives. 
And then finally, he wants us to minister to those who are receptive. He says in verse 4, whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave the area. Don't jump around. You find a house that is hospitable, they're going to open their, their, then stay there as long as, as God wants you to stay there. But he says, wherever they do not receive you, literally grant access to you. As you leave that town, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony or witness against them. Then they departed and went throughout the villages, proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. Minister to those who are receptive. Don't waste your time, your precious time, going back to Sunday's message. We're only here for a very brief time. Our lives are a vapor. Don't waste your time trying to minister to someone that really doesn't want you to minister. There's too many other people out there that will be receptive to you and what God wants to do through you to where spending your time beating your head against the wall with people who don't really want your ministry, God would say is a foolish waste of time. So this was the mission of the disciples. To be a herald, to trust God's provision, and to minister to those who are receptive. And really those, again, those same things hold true today. The feeding of the thousands, chapter 9, verse 10. The reason I skipped over 7, 8, and 9, really all that is is reminding us that Herod, that the, the influence of the disciples, the influence of the followers of Christ who were demonstrating and heralding the power of God had reached all the way to King Herod's household. And King Herod was now wondering what's going on. And his conscience is bothering him. And he's beginning to ask about who this Jesus is and who these followers are. So it shows that, that all God really needs is a group of people who really are committed to him and begin to demonstrate the power of God in their lives. And it can reach all the way to the highest levels of government. Beginning in chapter 9, verse 10, the feeding of the thousands is the only miracle of Jesus that is recorded in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In a sense, the only other miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That means God really wants us to get something here by repeating it in every Gospel. And you know the story. Jesus was ministering. In fact, I want to read verse 10 because that's important. When the apostles returned from ministry, notice they told Jesus everything they had done, and he took them with him, and they withdrew privately to a town called Bethsaida. I want to mention something there, not even in your notes. But Jesus is modeling for us, as well as for his disciples, when you've been in an intense period of ministry, you need to take a break. You need to get away for a couple days. You can't keep going at that pace. And Jesus modeled this. Every time he would send the disciples out after a period of intense ministry, they would always withdraw and literally get away and give themselves space. That's exactly what the word withdraw means there in the Greek language, to give oneself space. 
It's not good for us always to be involved so intensely in ministry. We all need to take a break every once in a while. Even when it's good and going well, we still need to take a break. And we all need to allow each other to take breaks and not to feel guilty about it. Many people who've come here, again, back to serving, it's like, look, it's okay if you take a break. And if we don't have anybody waiting in the wings to sort of assist you in that ministry or help you, then we'll just suspend that for a while because we're not going to let people be run into the ground because of ministry. Ministry is not as important as people. In fact, that's why you have ministry because it's supposed to be about people. And yet, it's real easy to just guilt people into never taking a break. Well, I don't take a break. Well, but Jesus said it's a good thing that we do. And we all need to withdraw every once in a while and take breaks. So, they got to Bethsaida. Bethsaida is a pretty desolate, out-of-the-way place. And Jesus was ministering to these thousands of people. And the reason I say thousands is because the Bible says later on there were 5,000 men. So if there were 5,000 men, that meant there were women and children, and there was way more than just 5,000 there. And he was ministering all day, and finally towards late afternoon or evening, obviously the crowds were probably getting a little restless, and they were all hungry. And the disciples, sort of being good managers that they are, you know, they started to figure this out, and they're like, yeah, we better go to Jesus and tell Jesus to dismiss these people to, so that they have enough daylight to get to the nearest town so that they can get themselves something to eat. And so notice, verse 12, the day began to draw to a close, so the twelve came and said to Jesus, send the crowd away so that they can go into the surrounding villages and countryside and find lodging and food because we're in an isolated place. And I think what Jesus said back to them just blew their socks off. He said to them, you give them something to eat. Wait a minute, Jesus. <laughs> we're in an isolated place. There's no way we have enough money to go to these nearby villages and, and whatever and, and, and get all the food that these thousands of people are going to eat. And all we've been able to come up with is this little boy's lunch. Five little mini loaves of bread and two fish. And Jesus said, so? You give them something to eat. Because in the feeding of the thousands, what Jesus was teaching them and what he wants to teach us through this miracle is our responsibility in meeting needs. And Jesus wanted them and wants us to get used to the idea that He wants to work through us in meeting the needs of others. And it's not a matter of looking to ourselves and what we don't have. It's a matter of just giving God what we already have and letting God do what God does and meet the needs through us. Let me say this another way, because this is really important. Many times as Christians, in our level of service and ministry, we never go past the level of service and ministry that we can't do on our own. We never get to a point like the disciples 
where we're literally overwhelmed by what God is asking us to do so that we totally depend on Him to do it through us. Most of the time, we never live there. And yet, that's really where God wants us all to live. To raise the level of our service and ministry to a point where if God didn't show up, it wouldn't get done. We settle for a level of ministry and service that we can accomplish in our own power, in our own wisdom. In our own know-how. And we never then, I'll say it this way, we're the ones that miss out. Because then we never experience, really, what God can do through us that is beyond ourselves. And that is a great blessing. And that's what Jesus was teaching the disciples. I know you don't have anything but five loaves and two fish, but... You give that to me, and I'll show you what I can do through you. That's why the disciples were part of every step of this. That's why he had the disciples sit people in groups of 50. That's why he had the disciples actually give out the food. Because he wanted them to get used to the fact that you come to me and look to me, and I'll just be able to minister through you, but it's going to be me doing it instead of you. And so much more is going to be able to be done. Instead of you trying to figure out how you can do it on your own without me. And then notice. There's not only the responsibility in meeting needs, there's the reward in meeting needs. Because the Bible says in verse 17, all these thousands of people ate and were satisfied or fulfilled. When God does something, it's fulfilling and satisfying. But here's what I love. What was left over was picked up, and guess what? How many baskets? How many disciples? Gee, nice little picnic basket for each disciple. <laughs> Jesus was teaching them and teaching us, if you trust me, to work through you in meeting other people's needs, I'll be the one to meet your needs. Don't focus on who's going to meet my need, God. That's not where God wants our focus to be. God wants us to be so other-focused that we don't worry about who's going to meet our needs because if we're trusting Him and doing what He's asking us to do, He'll take care of us. He wants to use us to take care of others. That's exactly what David realized when he wrote the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. And if God is my shepherd, I shall not what? Want. He'll take care of me. He'll, meet. He'll have my little basket for me. But he first wants me to allow him to work through me to meet others. And then my basket will be there for me. And that's why the feeding of the thousands is so important. Because God wants all of us to get to a place where instead of serving at a level and ministering at a level where we can do this on our own, that we allow him to stretch us and put us in situations and places and ministries and service where every day we're saying, God, I need you. If you don't show up, I don't know how this is going to happen or what we're going to do, but God, we need, and we're looking to God. 
to make it happen rather than looking to us or other human beings to make it happen. A confession and a cross. Let's get to that, verse 18. Once when Jesus was praying by himself and his disciples were nearby, he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? Verse 19, they answered, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, still others. One of the prophets who long ago had risen. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And of course, Peter's famous confession is, well, you're the Christ of God. You're the anointed Messiah. Notice he forcefully commanded them not to tell this to anyone. Why would he do that? Well, later on, if you keep reading, you understand that even though Peter made that great confession and and knew up here, in a sense, who Jesus was at that point, they still didn't, they didn't have enough clarity about who he was and what he was here to do to where Jesus was comfortable with them passing it along. Because they were going to pass along some misinformation rather than the right information. That's why Jesus said, I don't want you to tell anybody. Because later on, you find that they still don't grasp the fact that he's got to die. That they're still not clear on his mission. So Jesus doesn't want his disciples to pass along any misinformation. That's why he said, that's good that you know that, but you don't really understand it fully yet, so don't pass it on. And then he says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and experts in the law and be killed on the third day and be raised. That's why I put there in the notes, why is it important, this confession? Because suffering is coming. Rejection is coming. And if we truly don't know who Jesus is, and we haven't nailed that down, and we don't even every day get up and reaffirm our faith in who Jesus really is, then when suffering and rejection comes into our life, we're going to fall away. We're not going to keep going. We're going to be like the parable of the soils where times get tough, the pressures come, people start to, and we'll just, we'll cave. Because part of what's going to keep us on the right track is our belief in who Jesus is. If we believe in any way that Jesus is not who he said he was, that when tough times come, man, we're going to bail because we're going to be looking for something else other than Jesus. The only thing that's going to keep us on the right track is when in our hearts and in our minds every day, we truly believe that Jesus is the only way, the only truth, the only life. And there is no other path, no other person, no other thing that we could go to in spite of the rejection and suffering we're going to go through. That's why Jesus was preparing them. He said, you better nail this down. Because tough times are coming. And if you really do not have strong convictions about who I am, then you're not going to last. And of course, Judas, we know, definitely didn't last. Which leads me to the teaching on the cross, because eternity is coming. Verse 23. Then he says to them all, if anyone wants to become my follower, he must deny himself. And he must take up his cross daily and follow me, which is die to self. 
The greatest challenge in the Christian life is to deny ourselves and die to self every day. To say, not my will, God, but your will be done. That's probably the greatest challenge in the Christian life. And Jesus says, you cannot continue to be my follower unless you deny yourself and die to self every day. Because, why? Because at any moment, if it becomes about me, then I'm going to look around and see that the world's offering me this and Satan's offering me this and my flesh is saying this and I'm going to depart from the path of God in my life because there's going to be something out there that's more attractive and satisfies myself. And what Jesus is also trying to teach is the, the importance of denying ourselves and dying to self is because we are going to be offered all these other things. And the only way we're going to live for eternity rather than live for what we can get around here is when we're willing to take up our cross daily. Otherwise, the things that the world offers us and Satan offers us and our flesh is offering to us is going to be way more attractive because it's going to be that short-term gain. Look at what I get in the short term. And Jesus is saying the only way people are going to live for the long term for, from an eternal perspective is when we learn to say no to self and we die to self. A person who's hanging on a cross only faces one way. Their, their, fo their dreams, their plans, all that they had in life is gone when you're hanging on a cross. And Jesus said, that's the kind of mindset a true disciple and follower of mine will have. And here's why. Again, because eternity's coming. Because he said, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. In other words, throughout life, it's going to look like, man, we're losing out. Look at what we're missing by being followers of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is saying, the only way we're going to say no to that temptation is when we realize that anything or everything that I give up for Jesus Christ, I gain so much more in Christ throughout eternity. There is nothing that a human being, in a sense, ever gives up and sacrifices for Christ that's not way better in the long run. But I'm never going to have that perspective if I say Yes to self. I'm going to grab what I can get now and take my chances with eternity. That's why Jesus goes on to say, what does it profit a person or benefit a person if he gains the whole world but loses or forfeits his self? And the word himself there in the Greek language means what one was created to be. In other words... We never experience, we never realize, we never see who God created us to be because it's just the opposite. We think by saying yes to self, that means I find out who I really am. And Jesus is saying, no, in my kingdom, the way it works is to deny self actually then helps you to discover who I created you to be because then your life isn't lived about you, it's lived about me, your creator, and you see it much more clearly and live it much more evidently. Then he gets into verse 26, talking about his coming. 
Whoever will be ashamed of me in my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you most certainly, there are some standing here who will not experience death before they see the kingdom of God. And in just a few days, three of his disciples are going to see the kingdom of God in a glimpse of glory that Jesus allows them to have on the Mount of Transfiguration. So, confession and a cross is very important because suffering and rejection is coming and because eternity is coming. And unless we're willing to embrace the cross, unless we're willing to truly confess Jesus Christ and in our core of our being truly believe with all of our heart that He is who He said He is and there is no other, that's the only way we stay on that narrow path. Because as Jesus said, the other path is wide and there are many people on that path. The only way to stay on the straight and narrow path is through the confession and the cross because of what we're going to face. And we're going to think we're missing out. And the devil's really good at trying to get us to see, you're missing out. You're living your life for Jesus. Going back to Sunday... But life's a vapor. We're here for a very short time. Eternity is much longer than the 70, 80, 90 years or whatever that we have here on earth. And Jesus says, but the only way you'll live every day with an eternal perspective instead of a temporal perspective is when you say no to self and you die to self. Every day. This can't be some kind of commitment that a Christian makes once and then carries us through. We literally have to get up every day and say, Lord, help me to say no to myself today and help me to die to self because I know self is going to want to assert itself. And there's going to be something that self wants to go after that's not in your will. Every day. And if I do that, I'm missing out on God's best for my life. The transfiguration. About eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter, John, and James, and they went up to the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was transformed and his clothes became very bright, a brilliant white. couple things. First of all, notice there even in the notes, I put the reward of going further. I personally don't believe that Peter, James, and John were like, Invited by Jesus, and if some other disciple wanted to go, Jesus was like, no, I'm just taking these three. I think the others had the opportunity too. I think the reason why sometimes in the Bible it was just Peter, James, and John is because they were willing to go further. The others were like, no, nah, I'm going to stay behind. I don't feel like going. And that's why then, even within the band of the disciples, their leadership rose a little bit higher than the others. Because they were willing to go a little bit further than the others. Therefore, they experienced something of God that the others never got a chance to experience. Folks, that's why I commend you. And, And I realize that there's people who would love to be here on Tuesday night. They just simply can't make it. But there are others that could be here and choose not to. And so, in a sense, you all are choosing to go a little bit further. Therefore, you're going to get a little bit more. And they're the ones that's going to miss out. 
That's what we see in Peter, James, and John. Anytime you and I, as his disciples, as his followers, we're willing to put in a little bit more and go a little bit further, God will reward that. Because these three, not the other nine, saw Jesus transfigured. They saw a glimpse of the glory of Jesus Christ that he had before his incarnation. Remember, when Jesus Christ came as a babe in Bethlehem, when he came and, and put on human flesh, he did not give up being God. He simply laid aside the independent use of his attributes while he was on earth. But he never ceased being God. And therefore, on the Mount of Transfiguration, he gave them a glimpse of that glory. Notice also it says in verse 30, Then two men, Moses and Elijah, began talking with him. And they appeared in glorious splendor and spoke about his departure. Literally the Greek word there, departures, exodus, his exit. Which reminds us that when Jesus died, his life wasn't taken from him. He gave his life. It was a departure from God's perspective that he was about to carry out in Jerusalem. Then Peter and those who were with him were quite sleepy, but as they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. By the way, just a side note here, I got, I got enough time. Notice that Moses and Elijah were in bodies. One of the things I try to encourage people who've lost loved ones is that I believe that they're not, the Bible doesn't teach they're disembodied spirits just floating around somewhere. The Bible, Moses and Elijah were dead by now, had died a long time ago, and yet they were given bodies. I believe that believers are given intermediate bodies before our glorified eternal body is given to us at the final resurrection. I base that on this passage and some other ones where you see Old Testament saints in bodily form. Why Moses and Elijah? I think that probably because Moses obviously symbolized the law and Elijah symbolized the prophets and Jesus here at this moment, they were trying to get Peter, James, and John to see Jesus is unique. He's greater than Moses. and He's greater than all the law. In fact, he's the embodiment of all the law. He's embodiment of all the prophets. He is the Son of God. You'll notice, verse 33, Then as the men were starting to leave, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Yeah. Hello. Talk about a mountaintop spiritual experience. And then he says this, though. Let us make three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he was saying. In other words, again, Peter just, even Peter, who just said, you're the Christ of God, still didn't get it. It was like, we're going to build the same kind of shelter for Moses and the same kind of shelter for Elijah that we're building for you. No, Jesus isn't equal to Moses and Elijah. He's greater than Moses and Elijah. That's why he didn't know what he was saying. And as he was saying this, verse 34, a cloud came and overshadowed them. Clouds in the Bible always symbolize the presence of God. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Then a voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, my 
chosen one. Again, highlighting Jesus' uniqueness. You might think Moses and Elijah are great. Jesus is greater. And here's what the voice from the cloud said. Listen to Him. That's the responsibility of going further. There in your notes. Literally in the Greek, pay really close attention to Jesus. And not just as far as like listening to Him, as far as like when He says something, listen. It's literally pay close attention. Watch what He does. Pay close attention to how Jesus lives His life. Because even here, God was saying to His closest followers, He's the model. He's the example. He's the standard. Pay close attention to Him. What great words for all of us tonight. As we leave here, our... The word should be, we need to pay close attention to Jesus. What He said and how He lived His life. Then notice verse 37. Oh, let me read verse 3. So after the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one at that time anything of what they had seen. It wasn't until years later that the disciples who saw this actually told people, guess what we saw? Because again, they didn't have a total comprehension of what they saw. Now on the next day, here's the bummer, verse 37, when they had come down from the mountain, hey, Peter's no different than us. We, want, we would want to stay on that mountain, right? Jesus, can't we just stay here and soak you up? And No. In those great spiritual times with God, we've got to go down off the mountain. Why? Because God didn't leave us on this earth to just fellowship with Him. God left us on this earth to make disciples and to be witnesses. And that's why we can't just focus on our time with God. We've got to realize that our time with God is a time where then it gets us to a point where we can actually be more effective in heralding the power of God in our lives because the people need to see a clear witness of a follower of Jesus Christ. Obviously, if it was up to us, we want to stay on the mountain with Jesus. But Jesus says there's people who need me to work through you down from the mountain. And so as he comes down from the mountain, he meets this man who says, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son. He's my only son. Which, again, Luke is the only one that, that writes about that in verse 38. It, it, it shows us the desperation of this man. And he says, you know, there's a, there's a demon. And he says, it's torturing him. And in verse 40, he says, I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not do so. And Jesus answered, you unbelieving and perverse generation, how much longer must I be with you and endure you? I think Jesus was simply saying that to the entire crowd, but I think he was also directing that in some ways to his disciples. Why do I say that? Well, go back to chapter 9, verse 1. Remember what it said? Jesus gave his disciples power and authority over some demons, over all demons, and over all sickness. And now all of a sudden, they can't help this man. It was because of their unbelief. See, it shows us that Early on in their lives, as they started to minister, they were inefficient. 
There were times where they believed and God was able to use them. There were other times that they did not really believe in the power that could come through them and minister to others. And therefore they limited what God could do through them. Not because God didn't want to, not because God couldn't, not because God didn't have all power and authority. It was because of their unbelief. And so it was in the midst of unbelief. That's why I put there, back to reality. The reason why we need a clear witness and why we need to be the people of God that God's called us to be is because we live in the midst of unbelief today. We also live in the midst of pride. Notice on over. I'm going to skip down here just so I can get through this. In verse 46, same passage, same chapter. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them might be the greatest. Why do we need a clear witness today? Because we live in the midst of unbelief and we live in the midst of pride. When Jesus discerned their innermost thoughts, he took a child had him stand by his side and said to them, whoever welcomes this child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For the one who is least, the Greek word is mikros, where we get our English word micro. Among you, all is the one who is great. Greek word megas, where we get our word mega from. Micros, or mikros, and mega. And the reason why he chose a child is because in that society children were like the the lowest and Jesus saying if you think you're above a child then you got too much pride because Jesus wants to teach all of us we're not above anyone there is value in every human being I don't care who they are and we need to have a clear witness because of the pride that we have in the world. Then in the midst of prejudice, verse 51. Oh, well, let me, let me go back to verse 49. This is interesting. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he's not a disciple along with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him for whoever is not against you is for you. This also is pride. Because pride is, instead of cooperating with other people who truly are of God, we look at each other as competition. And the reason I want to, that's rampant today in in the church and in Christianity today. You can't get Christians and churches to cooperate with each other because we're in such competition with each other. Jesus said that's pride. If you're now, obviously, if they're a false teacher and and they're not teaching the word or something, that's a whole other story. But for those who are truly followers of Jesus Christ, we should learn to cooperate with each other. If not, it's just pride. Then in the midst of prejudice, verse 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, Jesus set out resolutely to go to Jerusalem. By the way, the word set out means to be resolved, to be determined. Are we resolved and determined to follow God no matter what the cost? Jesus knew what Jerusalem held. It held a cross. And yet Jesus was resolved and determined to follow the will of God no matter what. And Jesus wants us to get to that point as well. But notice, as they were going along, they entered a Samaritan village to make things ready in advance for him. But the villagers refused to welcome him because he was determined to go to Jerusalem. 
What's that? Don't have time tonight, but if you go to John chapter 4, you get the background for this. Remember the Samaritans had a different place to worship God? They didn't think that you should worship God in Jerusalem. The place where they worshiped God was Mount Gerizim. So the, the Samaritans literally rejected Jesus because of their own prejudice. Going back to even Sunday's message, we're the only ones that's got this right about this worship thing, not you guys. And so they missed Jesus because of their prejudice. Again, why it's so important that we clearly follow God. Because we live in the midst of unbelief, pride, and prejudice. And then finally, pretense. Verses 57 through 62. As they were walking along the road, someone said, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have dens, birds in the sky have nests. Son of man has no place to lay his head. Following me is very demanding. You have no idea what you're saying. You're just pretending. Then Jesus said to another, follow me. But he replied, well, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. As for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I'll follow you, Lord. But first, let me say goodbye to my family. I want to stop here. This is so important. Jesus is clearly teaching. Family does not come before him. These two, again, these last two, Lord, I'll follow you, but here's the thing. I'm going to put my family before following you. Jesus says, nothing, no one should come before me. I'm either first place or I'm not. And what Jesus was running into here was, in a sense, really pretenders. People who really weren't committed, really weren't sold out, trying to pretend like, oh, Lord, you know, I'm, I'm really a dedicated follower of you, but, you know, I got this over here and I can't do this. And it... That's why Jesus ends this great chapter with these words. Jesus said to them and to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Remember what happened to Lot's wife when she looked back? She turned into a pillar of salt. And again, based even on what we've said earlier, her looking back was, look what I'm missing by leaving Sodom and Gomorrah. There's nothing that I could gain in following God and following you know, these angels out of Sodom and Gomorrah that's better than what I had in Sodom and Gomorrah. So I, I'm looking back because I'm longing for that. I, I don't want to go further with God. And that was true here. They said, oh, Lord, we want to follow you. But they were looking back. In a sense, they were saying, but you know what I'm leaving? You do know, Lord, how much I'm sacrificing by what I'm leaving, right? And Jesus wants to get all of us to see Whatever we leave behind, whatever sacrifice we make for Him, will be more than repaid throughout eternity. As Paul said, the sufferings of this life cannot even, are not even worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us throughout eternity. And that's what Jesus wants us to see. And that's why he calls his disciples here and calls us today 
to live in such a way that when we put our hand to that plow, we don't look back. Because obviously, using an agrarian illustration, because his audience lived in an agrarian society, someone plowing a field and looking back, the field is going to be really crooked. The only way to keep a straight line and keep on the right path is to keep looking forward and not look back and, and think about what I'm leaving behind and what I'm sacrificing and what I'm missing. Because to Jesus would say, there's nothing back there that you've sacrificed and that you're missing out on. If you keep following me, you're going to have the most abundant, fulfilled, satisfying life you could ever imagine. Don't look back. Keep moving forward. Let's pray. God, thank you for the words of Jesus, for the challenge of Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for the challenge of, of this chapter. The challenge is all of us to, to really herald God's power in our life. To trust God's provision in our life. To trust Him to work through us. To be willing to, to allow you, Lord, to stretch us, to minister and serve at a level that is something we can't do on our own, but only You can do through us. Lord, we thank You for these challenges because, Lord, we live in, a, in, a, in an age of spiritual complacency and comfortableness where Christians just want to sort of settle in and be comfortable and complacent. But, Lord, You call us to a higher life, to the best life possible. And that life can only be found when we're willing to take up our cross daily and to deny ourselves. Lord, help us to do that even tomorrow. Once again, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, have a great rest of the week. Hey, be in prayer for us this weekend. We're having that great marriage getaway down at the Buttes. Be in prayer for that, that God will use that, and we'll see you Sunday. God bless.